This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ZCNYC. Thanks for listening. Good morning. To the New Year by W.S. Merwin. With what stillness at last you appear in the valley. Your first sunlight reaching down to touch the tips of a few high leaves that do not stir as though they had not noticed and did not know you at all. Then the voice of a dove calls from far away in itself to the hush of the morning. So this is the sound of you. Here. And now, whether or not anyone hears it, this is where we have come with our age, our knowledge such as it is, and our hopes such as they are, invisible before us, untouched and still possible. So uh, as, as part of my profession, I uh, accumulate poems that I could use to give talks about. And it's, it's, it's a rare poem that will lend itself because my judgment of a poem is whether it's useful and conveys the truth of the Dharma. So that's a, that's a, a narrow, demanding, high bar kind of, uh, a limit, thereby eliminating 99% of poems, particularly limericks. Um, <laughs> but there are certain poets who I can go back to time and time again, and W.S. Merwin is one of them. I've used his poetry a number of times. He's been a sometimes Zen practitioner and um, wrote the introduction, I've mentioned this before, to the uh, Maizumi Roshi and Daido Roshi's book on the Genjo Koan. So uh, he's comfortable with the Dharma and his work reflects the Dharma. I also want to acknowledge the name of this poem is To the New Year, that my partner in crime, Hojin Sensei, is uh, flapping her wings in readiness to take off to go to New Zealand for most of the rest of the month. So we wish her the best, and uh, my heart is with her, my thoughts are with her. It's a trip we alternate each year. So uh, I went last year, she'll go this year, and so on. So it's, it's very familiar to... You know, I can envision much of her trip and where she goes and where she lands and uh, kind of the bedroom she stays in and, uh, you know, on and on and on. We've been doing this for a number of years, so it's pretty familiar and pretty exciting to enter into the New Zealand Sangha and New Zealand itself, which is a wonder of its own, uh, to the new year. I also want to acknowledge a lot's happening in the Mountains of Rivers Order and that impacts it is about this temple. So yesterday we had a Zazenkai that the attendance was in the 30s, which is good and has been consistently that way. And there were a lot of students there. And um, from my perspective, it was a terrific Zazenkai. It was deep and silent. Uh, at the same time, there was a significant meeting going on in the city I guess it's a joint meeting. Is it a POC, 
whiteness uh, beyond fear of differences, or what's the umbrella? It was just beyond fear of differences. Okay. So it was um, uh, our sangha meeting to um, investigate how to dismantle the Mountains and Rivers Order in a good way, <laughs> meaning how to address the uh, prevalent racism, um, by implication, what my word is genderism, and and hierarchy that's embedded in all of us because this is the world and the society we live in, and how to do it in a real way without losing that which is so precious that, that this temple in the Mountains and Rivers Order, at least for me and others perhaps who practice within it, represent the, the Dharma, the insight into the Dharma, the realization of the Dharma, and um, the heart of compassion that hopefully lives within that and manifests within that. So these are no small things. Nobody has, nobody knows how to do this. This is, this is, there's no cookbook uh, to serve man or to serve woman. And that's a, a pun in the twilight zone, which if you're older, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, it's, it's, it's okay. It's my peculiar humor. So um, a lot is going on. And not all of it is immediate apparent. We had a meeting this week with an architect, with architects, uh, looking at this building and trying to formulate a long-term plan for the continuation of this building, and uh, which needs care, uh, needs a lot, although a lot has been done. Uh, much more needs to be done if we're going to be around here in 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Uh, and this hall be filled, continue to be filled. So, and there's much more than that. Coming months, I'm not sure if this is still being presented in this way, but Shugen Sensei, Hojin Sensei, and I will make a presentation to the Sangha about um, the building that's being planned in the the monastery grounds, which is called the Jizo House, which has multiple purposes, but one of which is to act as a, a place for the monastics uh, who dedicate their life, give their whole life to the Dharma. And, like all of us, get old. And what happens? Um, I mean, they live within the vow of basically poverty, uh, with uh, no accumulation, and of material things. And how do we take care of them as uh, they have been taking care of us? So, you know, this has happened, this has has happened yesterday with well-attended, and there's Taiko sitting there representing herself and the other monastics, and none of that and many other things that are not visible on a, in the midst of the Sunday program. Um, all of that is happening during the week, getting ready for it and preparing for it, and um, people's lives are dedicated to it. And every week there's a monastic here. Uh, don't miss that. Uh, and don't miss that they just don't, pop up on Sunday and sit and participate and do what they do, um, they're here doing so that you can be here doing. Let me segue into this poem. I remember in the early years of my practice, and I have to say that the misprint says, in the early tears of my practice. (laughs) 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 Hmm... My mind, uh, my mind was totally self-involved. That was my basis for practice. That's the basis for all of us as we come to practice. Uh, and that self-involvement was all that I knew. Um, and it seemed immense. 
and at times still does. Uh, yet I knew and perhaps hoped uh, that there could be much more for my life than just my own sense of self-involvement, my own movement towards getting what I want and avoiding what I don't want, um, my own movement towards self-satisfaction, really. I could have positions, political, sociological, racial. I basically came to adulthood in the 60s. Um, I supported black power. I supported the feminist movement of the times, the anti-war movement. And in many ways, I was very confident in my views, my politics, my righteousness. Um, And... I was also aware I was ineffectual in applying my energies to that, uh, clumsy. And um, for all the demonstrations, for all the energy and the anger that was channeled to the causes I supported and espoused, um, I felt off-center. Uh, I was opinionated, uh, looking back. I would say it was varying between arrogance with confidence and youthful confusion. Um, And also at the same time looking to my own life for success in life, for what I wanted in life, for fulfillment in profession and love and child rearing and um, the things that were important to me. and uh, not to paint too pretty a picture, uh, playing competitive tennis and doing other self-involved things. And someplace in there was the question, a, a deep and driving question, of what it meant to not be completely preoccupied with myself. So if I were to frame that now, I would say, as Mr. Merwin says, how often are we still? How often do we have the space to be who we are? And who are we in that space? How often can we see what is present before us? How often in our lives can we just be, simply just be? We recognize the need for that, and I hear it from people all the time who are looking in every conceivable way for a space to be. And, you know, kind of seeing something that catches our eye and grabbing it or being attracted to it or trying to work our life towards that. How can we live within an awareness, a deep awareness? And come forth from this awareness, from the depth of this, that has as its basis a sense of equanimity. And I'm not talking about a mind state here. I'm talking independent of the mind state. A sense of generosity, profound generosity. And wisdom. And when I speak of wisdom, I'm not speaking of being smart, although I'm going to say something about that, about what of wisdom to just see, to just be. And yet, within that being, 
does not ignore injustice, is not silent out of fear and ignorance and safety. I mean, you know, silence is um, a low bar. It's very safe, very easy to be silent, you know, secure. We don't have to do anything. And that applies in so many ways in our life. And, of course, we can go to the other side and, you know, be very verbal, very direct, even aggressive, out of the injustices that we see. Either way can be self-serving. Either way. So um, I'm asking about, and this poem is asking, about something beyond that, beyond silence in the ordinary sense of the word, and activity in the ordinary sense of the word. Of course, our life does not invite us to be still, so it has to be cultivated. The deep stillness that's being spoken of in this poem has to be cultivated. It just doesn't come automatically. And obviously, in this room, and hopefully in your life, you cultivate it with our zazen, which is both a doorway and also the whole thing, and also its own thing. Zazen, depending how we understand it and use it in the moment, depending how we think about it in the moment. It's all of those things, so it comes down to our own understanding of that in the moment. And so even when we sit Zazen, the pace of our thoughts and our thinking, which is a reflection of the pace of our life, can make it seem impossible to rest within Zazen. There's just too much going on. Am I the only one who sat down in Zazen and 20 minutes into my round of sitting 35, oh, I got to get up and take care of this? That that thought has arisen? Probably not. So this poem contains this question. And why should we be interested and consider the value of a mind that rests in stillness, whether it be stillness in the midst of a bodily stillness or stillness in the midst of activity? Stillness in a way that does not fall into activity or inactivity. Why should we be interested in that? And so here we are at the start of the new year. I started to say I collect poems, and one of the sections of the poems or other material that I collect uh, is the new year. So when I give this talk at the beginning of the new year, I have something to bounce off to that we can all relate to in common. And so here we are at the start of a new year. As another year falls behind us in the distance of the rearview mirror. And there can be a sense, not a happy sense, that the famous philosopher Tennessee Ernie Ford said, again, I'm dating myself, another day older and deeper in debt. I remember 1956, being in my elementary school and walking down the hall and singing that song to myself. It was number one. (laughs) And having two older teenage sisters, uh, that was a big influence on my musical taste. Anyway, that's another story. So another day older and deeper in debt, it could seem that way. But the debt I'm referring to is the ever-deepening debt we owe for this body, for this mind, for this food, for the clothing, 
for our practice, for the privilege of having all the material things subtle and overt that support us, that allow us to live, and also the understanding that to a certain extent, those material things are a zero-sum game, are to some extent, in some ways not, in other ways, yes. And so us having means, to some extent, others are paying the price for that. Which doesn't mean we reject what we have. Although it could mean that. But it does mean, are we aware of it, that 72 labors brought us this fill-in-the-blank food, life, clothing, and on. We should know how it comes to us which is the chant that we chant before each meal here at the temple. So the poet asks us, with what stillness at last you appear in the valley? It's a profound question. How do you appear in this valley? Do we appear with our fears, primary, with our pains, with our demands for gratification? with our denials, with our justifications of our position? Do we appear numb and dumb? Do we appear out of complete, here I am, nothing else is going on? Is our life a matter that I have what I have, and so I'm not giving anything up, let alone the thought of that, let alone my judgments of that, meaning my judgments of you and others, because to do that means I'm giving something up, even if you're gaining something. That's the zero-sum game. And how does this apply to the living reality within our society, within, again, the racial and gender and sexual perspectives that divide us. And even though we may be very generous in our mind, yet these exist. And how about your own practice and insight into these things? Not just into these things, into you yourself and your own conditioning. And we ourselves have our own personal challenges, perhaps our own traumas, our own limitations and disappointments and areas that we don't seem to be able to meet ourselves wholeheartedly. So how would we do this? How could this be? What would we be if we could open up to these questions? And if you wish to address these questions and not create more of this immense suffering, we have to start with ourselves. There's nobody exempt from these questions if we want to investigate them. Nobody who's free of their conditioning. Each of us have our own power position. That's how we got here. And that power position informs our life, informs our sense of security, informs our ability to, our our thinking about our ability to be safe, forms our actions and our thoughts. 
And so these kinds of questions take us back again and again and again to the fundamental question of who we are, of our being. Sitting right here. Right here. To quote the poet again, as I did yesterday. Between the peanuts and the cage. You get the metaphor? Which is not a metaphor. Between the darkness and the stage. Between the hour and the age. I'm quoting Leonard Cohn, and also I made one of those up. What is your true name? Who are you? And what do you rest in? Where do you rest in it? There was an article that I, somebody, Sege sent me this morning. Sege is a senior who uh, lives in Mount Tremper near the monastery. It's a wonderful article, and it, it really stopped me in my tracks because uh, it's so relevant to my life, even though it's not, quote, directly about me. Um, it's very much about me. And I don't know when it was published, but it might be in today's times. Um, and the name of the article, the title of the article, is The Joy of Being a Woman in the 70s, meaning not the 1970s. Uh, in the, um, and it's by uh, Mary Pfeiffer, P-I-P-H-E-R, who's a, a therapist. And I tried to print it, but our printer is broken. And that's another long story. Um, so I was only able to print one page, but I'll, I, I want to relate to it a bit. Um, and she says, when I told my friends I was writing a book on older women like us, they immediately protested, I'm not old. What they meant is that they didn't act or feel like cultured stereotypes of women their age. Old means bossy, useless, unhappy. A country's ideas about old women are so toxic that almost no one, no matter no matter her age, will admit she is old. And as I'm going through this, don't be limited by this cohort. Uh, I had to ask Tenfu uh, this cohort's widely used in the medical field, which is my background. I didn't know if, do we know this word? Yes, maybe. She said, well, it's a French word. (laughs) (laughs) So of course I know it. It means group, select group. Um, It's a very useful word. Uh, that has some well, cohort, you know. Uh, so um, in America, so I started to say, don't be limited. So take what I'm saying and apply it to your cohort or to others' cohorts. That's the point of this. In America, ageism is a bigger problem for women than aging. Our bodies and our sexuality are devalued. We are denigrated by mother-in-law jokes, and we're rendered invisible in the media. Yet most of the women I I know describe themselves as being in a vibrant and happy life stage. We're resilient and know how to thrive in the margins. Know how to thrive in the margins. How many groups battle and try to learn how to thrive in the margins? Our happiness comes from self-knowledge, emotional intelligence, and empathy for others. Most, Most of us don't miss the male gaze. It comes with catcalls, harassment, and unwarranted attention. Indeed, we feel free from the tyranny of worrying about our looks. For the first time since we are 10, we can feel relaxed 
And it goes on. That's the only page I was able to print. <laughs> but I took some notes. Uh, and this is just before I came down, so hopefully I can read my own writing. She speaks of being in this development stage, and that's an interesting term, the development stage. Wherever we are is a, is a stage of development if we look at it that way. And that development is very different than previous stages, and our perspective is very different. Um, and, you know, the stage... So I relate to this personally as being a man of that age and being married to a woman of that age. So I relate to this as a man of that age, I also relate to that by being married to a woman of that age. I want to be clear on what I'm saying here. This applies to me, but it applies to everybody and you. So each of us are faced by great challenges. Um, Each of us are unlikely to escape sorrow. And I can tell you that as you get older, you won't. Um, We all suffer. I'm quoting her. Uh, Not all grow. So... You know, I've certainly encountered people my age who are bitter and angry. Other ages as well, but this article is coming from that perspective. Bitter and angry, that's the summation of their life. And uh, men and women, by the disappointment, by the pain, by the anger that they've received, by the abuse from their perspective. So we all suffer, not all grow. So to do so by developing a morality, a, um, an imaginative um, expanding of our capacity. I'm not talking about fantasy here, and I'm mixing in my words. Um, and fundamental stillness and acceptance of our pain, and she uses the word bliss. I probably wouldn't use that word because I'm not particularly looking for bliss. Uh, I've had bliss in my life, and it's, I prefer a deep and profound satisfaction of being. But anyway, um, and she speaks of the pendulum between uh, joy and despair. Um, that makes aging a catalyst for spiritual growth, that pendulum, that acknowledgement of suffering and the acknowledgement of despair and the acknowledgement of of the joy that is within our life and how in living life we develop resilience. And she says that happiness is a skill and a choice. We know, we have learned how to create a good day we have learned. And I study the people close to me who are my age, you can fill in the blanks, and I study my own life of how to create a good day. And that comes down to the day, this day, how to create that. Happiness is a skill and a choice that comes out of looking for humor, for love, for beauty, and developing a capacity to appreciate. Perhaps you've had the experience, of I, as I have had so many times, of walking someplace. So uh, if I pick an idyllic place and pick the road up Mount Tremper, the, the walking road up Mount Tremper, and I've walked up and down that road 
thousands of times. Um, and how often I would start. Doesn't matter with daylight, night, doesn't matter. And be totally oblivious to what's going on. And then at some point, sometimes, just stopping, not necessarily physically stopping, but stopping and seeing and feeling, you know, my toes on the ground. If it's dark, I've spoken a number of times about how I would walk up that mountain without a flashlight because that encouraged me to see and feel. Uh, and the road turns and has ditches on the side. And, um, and, and in the midst of that, your vision changes from the uh, cones, which see color, to the rods, which only see black and white peripherally. You can't see directly. And your whole understanding of your environment changes. And that's in the dark, in the light. Suddenly, you're, you're living the giant oak tree that's there on that road, which is a magnificent tree, which is unique on that mountain, and so on and so forth. But how about walking down the street? How about that? How about greeting the person who collects the cans and bottles? There's a lot of ways to greet them that's appropriate to the circumstance. But how about greeting yourself in the midst of that? Starting there. So learning to appreciate, enlarging the capacity to appreciate. And she says, happiness is an attitude. It's an intention. It's a cultivation. And not everything is happiness. And I'm not talking about this from the perspective of a sweetness or a uh, la-la land. I'm talking about actually seeing reality from this perspective. Meaning actually seeing what's there when you get out of the way. So what is your true name? With what stillness at last you appear in the valley? Your first sunlight reaches down to touch the tips of a few high leaves that do not stir, as though they had not noticed and did not know you at all. That not knowing you at all is, you know, we talk of forgetting the self. When you forget the self, the world does not know you at all. You do not know you at all. So what makes our practice real? What makes this real? You cannot truly be who you are until you inhabit your own experience, your own direct experience. You can't until you fully inhabit your own experience. I want to read a piece by Susan Sontag, and it's in a particular way that directed towards a particular thing, art, but you'll recognize the relevance. It's called Against Interpretation, in which she says, people should stop trying to analyze and interpret art and just enjoy the experience as a spiritual and sensual level. Well, that brings us to the question, what is art? (laughs) And everything I've been talking about is that. She, She wrote, interpretation is the revenge of the intellect upon art. Interpretation is the revenge of the intellect upon ourselves when we sit. Even more, it is the revenge of the intellect upon the world. To interpret is to impoverish, to deplete the world, in order to set up a shadow world of meanings. Is that familiar? I don't mean is the quote familiar, 
Is what is her teaching familiar? It is to me. When you fully follow your own experience and immersed in it, who are you? So Merwin shows us. Your first sunlight reaches down, reaching down to touch the tips of a few high leaves that do not stir as though they had not been noticed and do not know you at all. How could anything outside you that you know, how could anything outside you, you know? What are you right? How could there be anything outside you that you know? You don't. You're interpreting. There's you and what's outside you. And the awareness of that opens the door to dissolving that space between you and what is outside you because there's nothing outside you. That's the fundamental awakening of the Buddha and many, 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 many other women and men since the time of the Buddha. There's nothing outside you. Then the voice of a dove calls from far away in itself to the hush of the morning. What is the voice of a dove? You cannot truly know your true name until you are quiet. So quiet that knowing and not knowing have fallen away. And notice he says that the voice of the dove calls from far away in itself. He didn't need to put that there. He could have just said, then the voice of the dove calls from far away to the hush of the morning, right? That's ordinary poetry as we know it. That's the poem I won't bring here. But he says, in itself, you in yourself, as yourself. So what the heck does this mean? What's the meaning here? You're not going to fall for that question, are you? Not after Susan Sontag's wonderful presentation. There's no deep meaning here. Just the voice of the dove. How do you experience this? The point is the voice, and that is still way too much, what I just said. There is no dove apart from the voice. There is no you aside from your true voice, your true person. Everything has a voice. Isn't that incredible? Everything has a voice. I find that remarkable. Animate, inanimate. So in Zen Buddhism, there's a perspective called teachings of the insentient. That's a voice. Every action speaks. Every thought is a projection that is far from the reality of your being. And we need these things. I don't, we don't want to walk down the street without awareness of the discriminatory presentation of reality. But that's not the whole of it. That's just one side of it. So how do you see the whole of it? We cannot know stillness. We cannot know non-duality, right? To know it is dual. You and it. But we can be stillness. We can realize stillness. There's no thought in this realization. There's no meaning in this realization. 
the stillness. Now just stillness. Now just the dove's voice. It is emptiness as form, and form is emptiness. And that is an explanation. That already is sliding away. So then the voice of the dove calls from far away in itself to the hush of the morning. This is to truly be alive. The hush of the morning. Which, as you, doesn't fall into stillness and doesn't fall into noise or to quiet. It's the hush of the morning. It's this moment in this sendo. It's your eyes meeting mine. But it's much more intimate than there's just the wonder of the hush of the morning. Leonard Cohn speaks of it in another duality that presents non-duality. Between the traitor and the pain is a phrase from his song. Between the traitor and the pain. Where's the traitor? It's in us. The pain, you know that pain. And so he was speaking of the traitor that we are to ourself and the resultant half-life that we get. And interestingly enough, become more sensitive to as we practice. The pain increases. (laughs) At least initially. Initially meaning the first 20 or 30 years of practice. And with that sensitivity to pain becomes sensitivity to others' pain and becomes the pendulum going back and forth between despair or pain and joy. And that pendulum never stops because each is contained within the other. The despair is contained within the joy and the joy within the despair. When we get that, when we deeply get that, then life is not a problem. It's not a problem to attend the funeral of your lover or your family member and walk away and hear the sound of the dove. Then the voice of the dove calls from far away in itself to the hush of the morning. So this is the sound of you. Can you hear your own true sound? There's a poem, as a koan that students have the opportunity to work on. Every day Zuyagan used to call to himself, O Master, and then answer himself, Yes, are you awake? And he would ask, he would ask, and then answer, Yes, I am. Master, yes, yes. This yes is not opposed to no. This yes is a, a yes that goes so far beyond the question, nothing is left out. And then he checks. Are you awake? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. To see into this koan goes beyond language. You can't speak an explanation of this koan and have it affect your life, let alone be accepted by the teacher in Dyson. Because that's the intellectual perspective of analysis. The sound of the dove, the hush of the morning, where do you find yourself? Anything you say, any response you make, anything you think already is apart from your true self. But that's all I know, you might say. That already is apart. 
doesn't fall into knowing or not knowing. It's not about knowing. We demand knowing, but it's not about knowing. That's the analysis that Susan was speaking of. So this is the sound of you. Here and now, whether or not anybody hear, anyone hears it, this is where we have come with our age. Whether or not anyone hears it, this is where we have come with our age. That's why I was so intrigued by that piece about being 70, because that's what she's offering us. Whether or not anyone hears us, this is where we have come with our age. That deep wisdom, that profound wisdom, that we have come with all of our life here to this place of our life. Right here. Do you know this for yourself? Beyond the kind words and years of life, beyond the thoughts about, this coming with our age is not limited to the age and the years that we have lived. What is the limit of our life that we have come with? And if you should say it's limitless, then what about here, right here, right now? Between the dancer and her cane, between your zazen and my pain, once again, once again. Our knowledge such as it is, our hopes such as they are, Invisible before us, untouched, and still possible. So this is the new year. This is us. Here we are. It's completely ours. Just understanding that intellectually and taking it in, that it is completely ours, is the doorway to our true voice. It is completely ours. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.